Fasten your seat belts, please. You're going to meet an extraordinary man today who's going to make you think about things you haven't thought about in ways you might not have thought possible. My guest is John Sibley Butler, entrepreneur and professor of management and J. Marion West chair for constructive capitalism at Macomb School of Business, University of Texas, Austin. He is a lecturer at a university in Tokyo. He was a Vietnam War veteran and won a bronze star, a man of many parts and quite extraordinary. Joining us is Linda Gasparello, the program's producer. John, you have some interesting views. You're a very successful man, successful in business, successful in academia, a professor, an enormous list of achievements, an author. You've taught in New England. You've taught in, you've uh, advised a presidential campaign, the Bush campaign, and you have taught in Japan. And people don't think of you as having thoughts about African-Americans. So I was fascinated when I found an essay of yours, and I'm going to read a little bit from it because I think it sets up our discussion exquisitely. This is you writing. Since I wear the success of my bourgeoisie group on my sleeves, one of my goals has been to create the analog of bourgeois, self-help structures that produced excellent black communities, some of which are now troubled. I think that black Americans occupy the best land in the Western world, many of them living in cities that are troublesome now, but that could thrive in the future with an infusion of bourgeoisie culture. This is not a word we often hear nowadays. The bourgeois, it's the upper middle class, the prosperous middle class. Uh, it, and certainly we don't hear it in normal conversation uh, linked to African-Americans. Sir, explain yourself. Well, I think it's very, very interesting. And uh, my tradition is what I call the old Southern black bourgeoisie tribe. And bourgeois just simply means those individuals with means are small shop owners. So when you look at America, I start everything with innovation and entrepreneurship. So if you were to look at what I call a model, if you will, and remember model is not a theory, a theory stands on its own leg, but a model is something that looks like something else. Then you can see that those groups that came to America that started off with innovation and entrepreneurship are what we call enclaves. We can think of them, for example, as a, as a Chinatown uh, today, or a little Italy in the past, or a little Germantown. But innovation and entrepreneurship was at the center of everything. Well, I was born in that culture. I'm, I'm proud to be a fourth generation uh, college graduate. Uh, I'm proud to be a fourth generation. People understand that at the very, very center of community is entrepreneurship. I think what happened to Black America is that how we talk about Black America is not very, very encompassing of the tradition. For example, when I went to undergraduate school at, uh, at LSU in Baton Rouge, then I got a PhD at Northwestern University in Chicago. I was literally shocked, and I hadn't traveled much to the North, I had traveled a lot to the, to the West. I was literally shocked at the, at the conditions in which the majority of the black population lived. Whereas I grew up in Southern Louisiana, I looked forward to going to colleges and university. Uh, we had private black schools such as Dillard University in New Orleans, Xavier University in New Orleans, public schools such as Southern University and Grandman College. 
So I think that what happens is that the whole idea of that tradition among Black Americans is certainly a loss. And one of the things I like to do is, is be very, very comparative. I could look at the Japanese on the West Coast. I could look at Eastern European Jews on the East Coast. Or I can look at the Ibu coming to America today. And I can tell you almost to a tune what their children would look like. So the idea of bourgeois simply means people of means. It means people who understand how to live in America. If we go back to the, to the continent of Europe, of course, bourgeois simply meant shopkeepers. And from the shopkeepers came the education of children. So, so Mr. King, when I read your essay and you said shopkeepers produced the college educated, then it came to my mind that that tradition is very, very strong in Black America. So, you know, I hear a lot about the South and segregation, but other seg segregation is something that we call homophily. Homophily simply is the fact that when like-minded people come together, sometimes it's around religion, sometimes it's around race, when they come together, they create structures for success. And I grew up with structure for success in what they call the segregated South, and I call a homophily of the black bourgeoisie. So just to conclude this point, if you look at Detroit, which of course was dependent completely on the automobile industry, and now it is a fading city. If you look at Atlanta, which to me has some of the most arrogant blacks in the country, then their structure for education has always been there. Because one of our one of our tribe was was uh, MLK, uh, my um, you know who, who my my tribal brother as I, as I refer to him, uh, coming out of Atlanta and Sweet Auburn Avenue, a third generation uh, Morehouse man. But unfortunately, uh, Martin did not take the bourgeois tribe to him in his speeches. Some might say that you're advocating some kind of parallel existence, some kind of return albeit more gently to segregation? Well, I think that there's a difference between homophily and segregation. So I have a great friend named Menzo, and, and she did a book called Chinatown. And she was criticized for Chinatown for being segregated. And she said, Chinatown is homophily. It is not segregation. And you can go to Chinatown and find families living two to an apartment, if you will, that's preparing their kids to get into the Ivy League. Or another great one is what happened in, in, in Miami, uh, the Cuban ex experience, a great book by Alejandro uh, Cortez. And he looked at how, if you look at Cubans coming to America, and Miami at one time was a decaying city. When Castro said, Llewellyn, there will be a new Cuba, he didn't know that it was going to be in Miami. So the entrepreneurs left, went to Miami, and created the same kind of homophily. So we must understand that the difference between segregation and homophily, one is legal. But what we do know is throughout the history of America, like-minded people, and sometimes is, it goes beyond race. Uh, for example, entrepreneurs create different kinds of communities. But when you look at Black America, I would love to make Chicago look like Atlanta. I would love to have private Black schools all over Chicago and I would love to have a bourgeois spirit. Now it's gonna be difficult because they grew up in the factory tradition. And when you grow up in the factory tradition, this is what you know. So what I like to say is that when I talk to my, my colleagues from, from Northern cities that are very, very destitute, 
And then I go to a place like Jackson, Mississippi, that's striving with black colleges and universities. And by the way, they're not just black anymore. So I don't think it's segregation. I think it's homophily. Linda? Shani, uh, you wrote in that, in that May 1st piece on, uh, black, on the black bourgeoisie, that black, the black bourgeoisie culture can be utilized in all Northern cities and certainly needs to be revitalized in the South. Can you imagine Cleveland and Detroit, for example, having a private school like Hampton University or Miles College, I might add, uh, or Howard University in Washington, DC from where this program comes. So my question is, do blacks need more black private colleges and universities, or do they need colleges and universities to be made wise? And by that I mean is to be made to see the value and the promise in black students and to act accordingly? Yes, I think so. When I say black universities, what I mean is that look at the models that have happened, right? And if you look at the private black schools of the South, which have been monsters in the education of children and monsters in the success of black America, to me, that itself is a model. And when I say private schools, I mean, again, you create homophily. Now remember, there's, there's never been a rule that says that you cannot go to a black private school. As a matter of fact, Morehouse College had a, had a, had a white uh, valedictorian, if you will, uh, some years back. So, so I think that is the structures you must put up. And it's, it is black Americans in those cities, such as Chicago and Detroit, that must set those structures up. So when my wife is from Cleveland, Ohio, when I go to Cleveland, Ohio, and I see empty buildings sitting around, I see a university. I see a university to start a great bourgeois tradition. But here is the interesting thing. My culture is beat up on in America. That is, if you look at what's on television, we're never featured, if you will, on television. The only thing that's featured, right, is one aspect of Black America. If you look at Tougaloo College in Mississippi, a great university that has created all kinds of interesting individuals, because all of these schools have sister schools in, in, the, in the Ivy League. If you look at Xavier University, they're sending 70% of these kids to graduate school. So when I say it would be great, you gotta put in the infrastructure so black Americans be successful in those difficult situations. If you go to Atlanta and look and look what they did at the old Bobby Jones golf course, well, you know, Atlanta ha has a lot of successful blacks, but they also put all the, the poor blacks outside of the city in a certain area. Well, they went back and cleaned it up. They did a, they did a school. Now kids are going to school. So remember, in my tradition, college is like drinking water. As a matter of fact, every butler since 1900 has attended college. And remember that sometimes college would take away your, your creativity. You have to be careful. So when I went to college, my father said, don't let college take away your creativity. So yes, I do believe that the infrastructure has to go beyond the race, but the infrastructure has to be there. And only black Americans can really, really say, we want those kind of schooling. It's gotta be private because you know, you're not gonna create a public school right there in the middle of, uh, of, of the city. There is a book by Malcolm Gladwell in which he uh, details how, uh, how a uh, young person with an aptitude for science uh, really, was, you know, with real, the, the, the faculty at this, her school thought she's going to be a great scientist. 
And she went to an Ivy League school and felt, just felt it was too, the cultural shock was too great. Do we push students into the wrong kind of school because of the, the, the alarm that goes with that school? I think you have two things going on. I think that if you look at that first generation college graduate among anybody, and we're talking about black Americans here, then it can be a culture shock when they go to a school like Brown. When you look at myself, which is a, when I went to LSU, the fourth generation college graduate, there was no shock because the expectations were there. So maybe you're looking at the relationship between class and attending school. Uh, because Llewellyn, one of, one of my great faults that I do have one, <laughs> when I went to LSU, I just felt like I was just as good or better than most of the kids at Louisiana State University. And I was one of the first black kids uh, to go there. My family was accomplished. All of my cousins were accomplished. So I think you, you're mixing, if you take somebody who, who did not have a tradition of education and send them to Brandon, as opposed if you take somebody who is a third or second generation college graduate, then they feel very, very comfortable. So I think, I think the comment is very, very right. And, and, and when you say sin, it, it's amazing to me with my tribe is that they are spending 50 and 60,000 a year to send their kids to Spelman and to Morehouse, right? Because those schools don't give the kind of scholarships that we might give at other universities. But the tradition is maintained and it's a tradition of education, it's a, a tradition of colleges and sororities. So I, I think that you, you, when we mix class with other things, then people can feel uncomfortable. But I think if you take somebody from Jackson, Mississippi, who's a third generation from Tougaloo College and send them to Brown, then they would find their way at Brown. And of course, the comfort level might be that there are people of different races. One of the flaws of the black bourgeoisie, I think, is that the homophily is so great that you don't mix with other people. Okay, so when I say don't mix with other people, they insist that you certainly go to certain kinds of schools. So there's not this, this racial mixture that, that you have. And we know that the more you have contact with people, then the better attitudes you have toward them. You teach entrepreneurism, business formation, you're very strong on that. You're a very successful businessman yourself. Uh, created companies, sold companies, I assume accumulated wealth. Uh, but somehow there's some gap. And I think of New Orleans. Long before I met you, I always thought that the most entrepreneurial people I knew were shining shoes in New Orleans. But they, there was no way to go from shining shoes to owning the shop in front of which they were shining the shoes. How do you deal with that, where you've got these people who have all the right instincts and rip no path out of the dead end? Yes, well, during the, during the days of uh, segregation, then there was no crossing of the line. So when you should think of entrepreneurship, and I think all entrepreneurship and all work, right, is honorable. And then let's take the example of the, of the shoeshine person. So no matter doing segregation, no matter how much money they accumulated, there are certain things they could not do. So I like to tell people with, with entrepreneurship and being in America, the bad thing about segregation was that you could have all the money in the world, but you could not do anything. And remember, this was also true of whites. That is, they could have all the money, they, they could have all the uh, 
if they did not have the money, they could not do certain things in America. So the bad thing about segregation was that you cannot go from being a shoeshine boy to owning the Monteleon, if you will, which is my favorite hotel in the world. You cannot go to a shoeshine boy from a shoeshine uh, boy to, to owning a certain kind of activity. But I tell you, when I land in New Orleans, there's a family there whose father started the shoeshine stand and all of, his sons, all of his sons are college graduates and they're still shining shoes in the New Orleans airport, a great guy. So you're exactly right. Uh, entrepreneurship, whether you're held by, by language or if you're held, held back by race, it's very, very frustrating. You could really see it in, with the Japanese in, in California. That is, you could have, you know, before the war, before World War II, you could have all of the entrepreneurship that you wanted to, but you're exactly right. There, there would be structures that would allow you to stay where you are. So what they did, of course, in New Orleans was to go out to Gentilly, around Dilley University. So in New Orleans, uh, where the city of my birth, where the Astrodome sits, was like a place called, you know, I'm not the Astrodome. I'm always thinking of Texas, where, where the dome in New Orleans sits. It was the old black Chinatown. It was where black communities were. We had the best restaurant uh, in the world, the best food in the world. And, and I can remember that, you know, as a kid uh, growing up and, and going to those things. So you're exactly right. When, this, when, when it's broken, then entrepreneurship means you cannot move up. Some of the social movements which have resulted in, in, in unfortunately, sometimes in violence, and I'm thinking about Washington in 1968 after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, uh, when so much black property was destroyed, as well as a lot of white property. But until that point in time, U Street had been uh, really a, a cultural mecca for everyone. It was black, it had black nightclubs, jazz, etc. A bit the way 125th Street in New York had once performed the same function, but it never returned. They rebuilt very slowly, took 40 years, rebuilt the burned out parts of Washington, D.C., but they didn't rebuild that spirit somehow. It, it, and that's very tragic. Absolutely, and I think, I think what has happened, and we call those enclaves, whether it's in, in Memphis, Tennessee, whether it's in Tulsa, Oklahoma, whether it's in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, there were, let us call Chinatown enclaves. But there are two things that happened. After the 1960s, then the whole idea of family enterprises began to be challenged by the big boxes. So in my hometown, my, my father owned a well-known mush, a malt shop. Well, when McDonald's moves in, or when Walmart moves in, then it had an impact on the main street in all cities. Now we do see this, however, with immigrants. We do see the continuous relationship between coming to America and creating those small shops. And then of course, uh, some of those things just disappear because, and here's the connection between education and, and entrepreneurship. The first generation create shops and make the money. In the case of black America, it was disturbed by the riots. And I always say that the civil rights movement, which, which had no notion of economics involved in it, you know, my Boulay brother, my fraternity brother, Martin Luther King, he was, a, he was a minister, so he had no notion of economics and what it means to be economic as a kid. 
So his message did not include the enclave and the success of Black America. But it, was, it did not disturb the patterns that we find in the old Black bourgeoisie. Although the shops were gone, the value structure remained the same. The first generation makes the money. The second generation educates their kids away from entrepreneurship. The third generation, because they went to college, the third generation struggles to go to college. And the fourth generation has to start all over. Now remember, there are many ways to cut it in America. From the bourgeois standpoint, education is at the very, very center. But you, when I say education now, it does, ha does not have to be a formal education. Education can be anything that you learn how to do. So, so I tell my students, you know, if you, if you want to learn how to play classic guitar, you can do it on YouTube. So now we have more for, for learning and doing than we've ever had. But certainly in the case of Black America, you're right. The enclave idea never came back. And the other thing that was important was Black Americans can live anywhere. So I was looking at Austin, Texas, 6th Street, which is our celebrated 6th Street, at one time was the Black Enclave. Now, Black Americans lived all over. During the days of segregation, we were forced to live in certain areas. So no, no matter how, how much money we had, we could not move out to the, to the developing housing projects and those kind of things. So consequently, when, when desegregation happened, then people allowed themselves to let their money take them as far as they can. And I think this is what America about. How far can your money take you? And you should do that in a freedom kind of way. And aren't we as a nation, and this is not primarily a question directed to the African-American issues, but as a nation seeking definition in big institutions, uh, we, you mentioned IBM, you want to be a vice president in IBM or a vice president in Uber or something. Uh, whereas the bourgeois, as by your definition, were the shopkeepers, the small local self-employed people like my father, always self-employed, uh, thought that you had to be self-employed, you had to be free, although it probably cost him dearly, he wasn't always that successful. Um, how do we reinstill in Americans the love of the small, the love of the, 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 the entrepreneur on the block, not the entrepreneur in Silicon Valley hoping to have, a, have an IPO and make billions? That is a wonderful question. That is a great question. But let me just say this, after the 1970s, when the corporate America literally fell apart, when General Motors was having trouble with international competition, we were losing steel, we're losing all of those things. And we reset America, but we only reset in three places. We reset America in 128 in Boston. We reset it in Austin, Texas. And we did reset it before it was Silicon Valley. With Stanford, let's call it Silicon Valley. And these were kids who went back and discovered the entrepreneurial process. The idea of studying it was not in business schools. It was in psychology. It was economics, it was in sociology. It, it, was a, it, was, it was Max Weber, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. I'm predicting on your show that in 25 years, Detroit would be the next Silicon Valley. What it takes, you're exactly right. It takes a resetting, but the resetting this time is in science. It might be in biology. It might not just be in Silicon. So I think that lessons 
for the innovation and the entrepreneurs. I study immigrant entrepreneurship. 50% of all the companies, the great companies in Silicon Valley are immigrants. If you look at America, immigrants since the 1870 census are more likely to be self-employed than the native ones. I did a book called An American Story, Mexican-American Wealth Creation. And I called all the wealthy Mexicans, not Hispanics, but the Mexicans. And we put together a fabulous story of scientific research on innovation. So you're exactly right. The country is constantly being re reset. I have, I have a student, a former PhD student, who is now his president, his name is Todd Hamilton. And his new book is Immigration and the Remaking of Black America. If you look at what the Nigerians are doing, the Ibu are doing, the reset is taking place among the newcomers. The Russians are kicking in in New York. Austin was set by a, a, a graduate student, Laura Kiltries, who was from England. And Laura was responsible. She was director of the Austin Technology Incubator that produced wealth and wealth of, of jobs. Because as a, new, as a newcomer, she could bring her, her totality of looking at all of the opportunities in America. Because we are blinded by the opportunities in America. So you're exactly right. We have to reset the idea and, and the pandemic will do that. I'm predicting that the coffee shops will be reset. I'm predicting that small shops around communities will be reset, but people have to have a bourgeois mentality. Um, we're coming towards the end of our time and I have a couple of questions. Uh, one of which is you talked for what, nine years, seven or nine years, I forget, in Japan every year. I did. What did you what did you learn teaching in Japan? I learned we went there to put in the entrepreneurship with IC Square and George Kosmeski. And I learned that entrepreneurship would be done by large companies in Japan. I think since 19, 1950 or after World War II, they've had one great company, Sony, to scale. Innovation would take place in Mitsubishi is a hundred plus years old. Right, Toyota is a hundred plus years old. So unlike Americans, unlike my experience in China, I told you in Beijing, the individual entrepreneurship in Japan is not great, but the corporate entrepreneurship is very, very great. I also learned that un until they have a degree of immigration, then the age pattern, the age structure would catch up with the economy. It was a fascinating experience, the cleanest country I've ever been to. I could leave my wallet on a turnstile when I got on the train and when I got back, it was still there. Well, John Sibley Butler, you are a fascinating man. Thank you. That's our broadcast for today. Thank everybody for coming along. Cheers. shows.